There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. This is The Grill on Dubai Eye 103.8. I think it's fair to say that confusion reigns in sport in general, uh, none more so than in the world of Formula One. When can we expect to see Formula One returning to a track near you in 2020? Is it 2021? Uh, let's wait and see. And uh, let's get the thoughts of uh, Formula One journalist Ted Kravitz, who's been explaining the logistical and scheduling challenges facing the sport as a result of, well, you know what the miley well formula one and the fia are optimistic but really at the moment optimism is all they've got because if you think about it there couldn't be many worse sports more challenged to actually overcome the coronavirus than formula one if you think about it with two football teams you've got 11 players on each side maybe a support team of 100 people or so and if you have the game behind closed doors that's all the people are going to need to parachute into one venue formula one has a thou- between 1,000 and 1,500 people. That's all the teams, all the support staff, all the media, the tyres, the tyre companies, and the TV companies, and all of that. They all descend on one venue from all over Europe and all around the world, stay there for five days, and then they all disappear off to the next venue. So it's real challenge getting Formula One into places and then out of them cleanly and with little to no risk of spreading the coronavirus. So that's the challenge Formula One has to overcome. They're optimistic that maybe once the summer comes and uh, we get to September, they might be able to cram in eight races. That's the minimum you need to hold a valid world championship. Just eight races. There were meant to be 22 of them this year, but they're optimistic they can get eight races. We'll have to see if that optimism is well-founded. Is optimism going to get us there, Robert well, It should be pointed out when we look at, for example, Fangio, the great Brazil, is it Brazil? I think he's Brazilian. I need to double check. We'll get our next guest to double check for me. Argentinian. Argentinian. My, my apologies. He, I think, was was operating in a time where I think they had um, far fewer races in a season yes. than they do than they do today. The, the 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 number of races that we were supposed to have this season was unprecedented. Twenty two. And th- that that number has been growing exponentially yeah. throughout the course of the last three decades. So, okay, eight race is not ideal, but by no means unprecedented. No. When you talk about a Formula One World Championship and you talk about asterisks, that needs to be taken into consideration. Absolutely, it should. And one man who can pass comment on that joins us now live on the line. Broadcaster, journalist, commentator as well. NBC Actions commentator last season. It is the one and only Damien Reed joins us live on the line now. Demo, evening, my man. Good evening, guys. Nice, nice to hear you. Yeah, great to have you on the line, Demo. Now, well, let's before we delve into what Formula One are going to be rolling out in the coming weeks, and there is an exciting proposition that we've got to get the listeners on board with. I want to just get your your kind of thoughts on this because F one, it's fair to say, Demo, of all the sports, of all the entities. They were the ones that came out with a lot of criticism directed their way because the Australian Grand Prix was a matter of hours away before Chase Carey and the lot said, you know what, we've maybe let this go a little bit too far. It's finally off. Give us your thoughts. It was an absolute shambles in Melbourne, I have to say. Um, And and what Ted Kravitz is is, is right. I mean, we need eight races to make it a championship. I have seen a proviso calendar that, that hasn't been released where we could potentially see 18 races still happening with up to four during the uh, the mandatory shutdown break of August. So we no one has a holiday in August and we race every weekend. But, um, yeah, getting back to Melbourne, it, you know, what we saw was, was, was pretty despicable in terms of the race organisers 
the the FIA and uh, and and Liberty Media that that owns the rights to the championship, effectively sitting around a table on the Friday morning, passing the bill around as to who's going to pay the rights for for this race. Because if it's called off as a result of a virus, then the promoters, which is the Victorian government of Australia, uh, waives the fee. That doesn't have to pay the fee. And we're talking fifty million dollars here. If it gets if it's run behind closed doors then they still have to pay the fee, but then they lose all their revenue income, which is uh, food and beverage and merchandise, because there's no spectators there. So that's why we had this situation. Chase Carey from Liberty flew in that morning straight to the circuit and was holding this meeting literally while fans were building up outside the gates, literally passing around the bills to see who's going to pay that $50 million. That's shocking is what it is, Damo. We saw Lewis Hamilton, who we've said on this show time and time again, polarises opinion. He was very much the the bastion of of Saints and, and, well, he came out to say it's shocking that it was left to this late in the day. He has come out with a lot of new fans through that. What are the racers making of all of this? Because it's fair to say Liberty Media Group have failed to, I think, convince everyone of their intentions, of the fact that they are the right uh, custodians for moving forward. Formula One forwards, yeah. have they lost a little bit more respect amongst the drivers? A lot. They've lost a lot of respect. And I actually wouldn't be surprised, it's been touted around by a few people, if that when we come back after the summer break, we may have a, a, a new a new company. Because their, their, their stocks fell through the floor at NASDAQ that day of the Australian Grand Prix to an almost unrecoverable position. Chase Carey's position is also being brought into question. And it got to the point where, on top of that, the president of the FIA, Jean Todd, was unaware of what was happening. He was at a, at a, at a business conference in, in Paris at the time, unaware of what was going on. So what happened in Melbourne was the teams took it upon themselves effectively to call a shot. And it was the board of management of Mercedes-Benz who sent through a, uh, an email saying, we don't think it's safe for our staff to be racing. We're pulling the pin. In addition and separately to that, and I know this from friends of mine who work for Emirates Airlines um, down in Melbourne, they emailed me a quick manifest of passenger list and they said there's two names on the 6am flight out of Melbourne, one Kimi Räikkönen and one Sebastian Vettel. And they, because once it came out of the meeting at three o'clock in the morning, when they realised that it's probably not going to happen, they took it upon themselves. They said, we're out of here. And once you've got those two drivers missing, you can't run the race effectively. Damo, let's talk about the financials, if we can, because that's also, implications are huge. F1 generates an enormous amount of money, but it get, but at the same time, it's very precarious, isn't it? Because it's really only the race hosting fees, as you already mentioned, and the broadcasting rights where the money flows in. And to support all this massive operation with, with all the teams in Formula One, if the season is dare I say it, wiped out completely. Are some teams going to have to close down, shut up shop? What will Formula One look like when it finally does come back? Yeah, and, and this is a really grave issue and a serious point. I mean, there's, there's very grave fears about the future of Williams, Williams Grand Prix Engineering, for instance. They might not be able to weather this, this, this period now. They might not be back when we come back in June. That's how close we're getting. Um, you're right. The way it works is that Liberty Media owns basically brings the circus to town they have the, they, they own the drivers they own the cars and the teams they bring the circus to town and a local prom- promoter in in the, in the whether it be a government or whoever um puts the circuit on and pays a right to them to bring them there and then they pick up the revenue from uh from gate takings and and, and associated things around that vip clubs and hospitality and hot laps and various things then there's the tv rights which is a separate things that come through formula management 
and then that's distributed amongst the teams. That the teams earn a revenue from the TV rights. If there's no TV rights, they don't get any revenue. And uh, you know, teams like Williams are desperately relying on uh, on, on on the TV revenue to stay to stay afloat. So this is going to have a, a big impact on the lower end of the teams. I, I also have serious concerns about whether Haas will weather this storm. They had a rough year last year, and Carl Haas is uh, on record as saying that he doesn't. He's not sure whether he thinks it's worth the investment after the debacle of last year. With, of course, as we know, we mentioned that they lost their sponsor in a fairly dramatic way. Um, so there's at least two teams there that, that may not make it to uh, to the mid-season of this year. Yeah, we should point out Australia done and dusted. Bahrain, Vietnam, China, Holland and Spain. All of those races have been postponed. I know a number of race organisers looking at the calendar to try and slot some of those in later on in the year. There is, however, Damo, and I want to get to this, I want to get your thoughts on this because, well, it's fair to say that the sport has come up with a rather unique way of keeping fans entertained because we're moving to virtual Formula One. Tell us more. Yeah, there is a silver lining to all this, and it's the guys who operate the esports side of, uh, of of Formula One and motorsport, and they are absolutely they cannot sell enough simulators and uh, and consoles. The guys the guys that uh, that are running the esports platform for Formula One, on behalf of them, are gone mad with it because what's happened now is that uh, they've decided they're going to run a virtual series for those races that are missing, and there are two that are starting this weekend. There's um, there's the official F1, which is the F1 Rewind that starts with the, um, the, the replay of the Brazilian Grand Prix that's happening right now. But then tomorrow at, uh, at midnight UAE time, so 8pm 8, 8 uh, GMT time, will be the virtual Bahrain Grand Prix. With, um, with, with, with They haven't announced the driver list yet, but there's going to be some uh, current drivers in that one as well as, as, well as uh, other drivers. Then on top of that, there's... Um, uh, the race must go on, which is another one. It's a, from uh, from uh, um, it's a esports from from Racer, which is a, a website. And the, the list of their drivers, they're they're, they're going to be racing at uh, 10 p.m. UAE time tomorrow night. They've already got Max Verstappen, Juan Pablo Montoya, Sebastian wow. Montoya, which is Juan's son, um, Nelson Piquet Jr. Um, we've even got uh, Ed Jones, our own Ed Jones, yeah. is, is, is lined up for a race tomorrow. Neil Yarny, um, you know, some some very big names right across here. You know, Bruno Giancaro is racing. Guys from IndyCar, from from Formula One, they're all racing at 10 p.m. tomorrow night. So, yeah, you know, that's that's been the the upside to it all. Is that a simu- the sim racing has taken over? And Lando Norris's Twitch site was the most watched um, on record ever. Uh, Two, two nights ago when, when he when he did his own uh, Australian Grand Prix with a few of the F1 drivers. So, yeah, everyone's tuning in, and um, that will hopefully get us through until probably Baku when the next race will be in the first week of June. Listen, Damon, I've got to ask about Lewis Hamilton because, of course, he's one of those sportsmen that, that, that were on the cusp of, of doing something unprecedented historic in in tying michael schumacher's seven world championships this was apparently supposed to be the best or the best chance that he would have this season before those new uh, regulations come into play i think in 2021 is this an absolute you know for lewis hamilton and, and his chances of going beyond michael schumacher how damaging has this disruption been do you think I think, in all, in all honesty, everyone is, is still in a, a state of shock as to the way the whole world is going at the moment, and it's just survival mode. People are just doing what they can. People are helping each other out, uh, going across teams, and, and doing what they can. And so it's a, it's a, 
it's an interesting atmosphere in the Formula One world at the moment. And I honestly think that things like records and, and breaking all-time lists is, is not really at the top of people's minds at the moment. Uh, news came through yesterday from the FIA that um, they're going to suspend the new regulations until 2022 now because it's going to be uh, too expensive, basically, to run these cars for, for six months and then throw them out. So they're going to run these cars in the same specification for next year. So it still gives Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton that upper hand that they had when they came into this year for next year. So we could very well see... That, I mean, he's going to get there. It's it's more than likely it's going to be delayed by one year, maybe two years, um, to, to get that record of beating Michael Schumacher's numbers. Damo, apologies if we're seeming a little distracted here. Uh, the noise you can hear in the background there, we understand, is... It's not. Uh, it's not Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield's uh, fingers tapping the the, the, the the table. It is hail hitting the back of the uh, the studios down here in Knowledge Village. Unprecedented uh, times. Unprecedented weather conditions <laughs> at the moment as well. Just to add to the mix. One question from me to you though, Damo, is we've focused a lot on F1. Uh, given the growth and the interest, and the investment of Formula E in recent years what sort of position are they in are they in position to weather the storm yeah well they, they took an entirely different approach they uh, were, were much more measured in their thinking and they pulled the pin on the championship two weeks before formula one uh, arrived in melbourne and they said look it's just not going to happen so let's let's just let's just call it quits now think about it and we'll come back so they delayed their entire championship early in the piece um because there is obviously uh, there's a, a very heavy Italian involvement in Formula E, as there is in Formula One, mm. but but they could see what was happening as well. So they also had the luxury of of not literally having um, you know containers in the air and containers on the water heading to an event. They had that luxury which Formula One didn't. Everything was already being set up in Melbourne at the time, so there was that dilemma of do we burn our money or do we do we call it quits? But Formula E has has weathered it so far, and uh, I think you know by the time fingers crossed we all get back to a normal pace of life and, and things are okay by the end of this year. They can carry on with their, with their season as per normal because it runs to the, to the opposite of the F1 season. It runs uh, in, in, uh, it starts at the end of the year. Damo, last one for me, not to get over dramatic here, but we've been talking about the fact that we are, and I'll say it again, in unprecedented times. There's another one for our bingo. But let's be realistic about this. The world as we know it from a sporting standpoint, I think is going to change. It is not going to be what it once was. And I'm looking at, and I've just been thinking there, just about this virtual Formula One. More than any other sport... I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm hypothesising a little. F1 is right now maybe the sport that will change the most because, as Robbie's alluded to, 22 countries is an awful lot. And I just wonder if eSports, virtual Formula One, will take off in a way that it will change the whole landscape of F1. Are you with me on that or am I just being over no, I think this is a, a, a this is a, a potentially a, a massive positive for for Formula One because it can bring an entire new audience. It can get rid of the the, the old folks like me who who want to hear about the <laughs> and the tens and twelves and things, and bring the kids who are brought up on e on esports and get them involved right off the ground off the, off the bat. We've got guys amateurs who are who are putting up on on Twitter. Oh, I raced against Lando Norris last night. Look at my turn. Look at me on turn twelve at Brazil. I passed him on the outside, and you know, and these guys are in on it. And I think. Yeah, it's it's a, such a technology sport that um, uh, that you know simulators are a vital part of Formula One anyway development. So link them together and make a championship out of it. Now the other thing too is that they they were talking about the idea of with the extra races, cutting the weekend from three days down to two. Now they're probably going to do that this year anyway. So that's a way to trial it to cut back as well. Um, 
And I can see a lot of changes that are going to come in from here on. We're going to have shorter race weekends, a bigger E-series of, 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 of support, and, and a big cutback on the number of people actually travel to races. Good on you, Damo. Really appreciate your time. Can't let you go without you painting us a picture, if you can. Uh, how are you staying at home? How are you isolating? How are you lockdowning? I'm, I'm well and truly locked down. The phone is my new friend, and, uh, and, and a solid Wi-Fi connection is my saviour at the moment. I'm staying way out of this situation, especially as I'm watching the weather just kick in now. It's obviously coming over from Knowledge Village towards my area, and the hail is kicking in, so I'm quite happy to stay inside. Well, given the fact that you have that newfound relationship with your phone, get out there and record it, because that seems to be what everyone <laughs> is doing at the moment. Uh, good on you, fella. Really appreciate it. Uh, hang tight. Uh, be safe, and we'll speak to you very soon. All right, guys. Thanks very much, and uh, likewise, take it easy. Big thanks to Damo for joining us live on the line. Keep your thoughts coming in, 4001. More sports from the team. Uh, And I know we've been saying it throughout. Stay safe. uh, Stay home. Stay safe. Uh, If you are on the roads at the moment, well, basically, you should be at home. You need to be heading home anyway. But if you are, just go steady. We have got some uh, rather interesting weather formations over Dubai and Abu Dhabi at present. More details on that in a few moments' time. Plus, of course, more sports. This is The Grill. On Dubai I 103.8. You are listening to Dubai I 103.8. You are keeping your thoughts coming through to us on 4001. We much appreciate all of your thoughts and opinions. And we really thank you for uh, getting involved in the conversation. A conversation that's crossing so many different sports at the moment. There ain't a sport out there. Well, we've been trying to find. I know that you boys have been working tirelessly to try and find a sport that hasn't been affected by uh, the COVID-19 outbreak. You've got to go to Alaska. It's a sport that Robbie's been keeping an eye on. A race, a very famous race, Rob. The Iditarod. Yeah, the Iditarod, which is essentially a husky. It's a musher's race (laughs) across Alaska. It is ongoing. I do believe that uh, today is the end date. They end up, I think, in Anchorage, I believe. Um, I need to do a, a bit more digging as to exactly what state the race has, it was has an Engl- to. It was an English-born Norwegian who yeah. was leading after the first couple of days. That's the only sport. NRL, you've already mentioned, Tom. Other than that, it's wiped out the world of sport as this coronavirus. It's interesting times, that's for sure. Uh, right, let's get some thoughts on some of the big stories. We're going to be hearing uh, a little later on about all things Olympics. Before that, let's just talk more football if we can. Uh, because you mentioned a little bit earlier on, uh, Robbie, about Gary Neville coming up with some interesting suggestions about how things can be sorted out. Let's start with his thoughts uh, on the Premier League and when that might come to a conclusion, if ever, for the 2019-2020 to season. With the money that is awash in the Premier League... I think there is also an opportunity for the Premier League to lead the way in terms of what they can do for potentially the health service for the community. And they have to essentially look at health first, the economic impact of their own business and their own clubs and their own staff next. But then beyond that, they do have to make a statement, I believe, that essentially goes out there to help communities and the people of communities. I think footballers, there is a massive opportunity for footballers here. And we're sat here as two ex-footballers. And we're not sat here as two ex-footballers who I think uh, are talking this way because we are no longer employed by football clubs who essentially have got you know, income streams. But there is a, I saw Borussia Mönchengladbach, I think a club in Germany, have just, I think, announced this afternoon that they're willing to donate their wages to non-playing staff for the next few months. There is a massive opportunity for football players here to grab essentially defeat, uh, you know, a, a victory from defeat in what is obviously a, a terrible time for the whole country. 
and give some reassurance to people that everybody in football are human beings and that they aren't just in it for the money. Football can act positively, I think, and there is a big opportunity that exists if, if in the next few weeks they can assess the economic Im- impact upon football itself. Yeah, nice, and, and goes a long way. And we're seeing a number of clubs, a number of footballers are taking new initiatives. Wilfred Zaha today opening his house up to yeah, um, health workers. Yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo, I think, is two hotels in Portugal. He has uh, brought in doctors, nurses, paying them out of his own pocket, mm. essentially he's turned his hotels into de facto hospitals, Ronaldo, through his own person. Listen, I mean, a, a noble thing to do, and we salute ourselves, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo is not short of a bob or two. It's far easier for people like him to do it when they've got so much yeah, money. I, I mean, concern here would be, how long does it go on for? I mean, yeah. It's great, you know, in the first week that you haven't got any live football, um, and these initiatives being taken, who's, who's not going to do that? But, you know, we've been talking about the prospect of this going on for a lot longer, and even footballers with their limitless the cash problem, funds, etc. The problem is, as well, is that the footballers who are swimming in money are playing for the clubs that don't need the help. The clubs that True. need the, ho- the help... And they're going to need the help, and then they're go, go, going to get, go, go right up against the bread line and potentially have to go into liquidation are the clubs in the lower leagues that aren't paying a king's ransom to their players. So does football's generosity extend beyond mm. the realms? I think it would be very reasonable to assume, as we've seen with, for example, I know uh, Roman Abramovich, the Chelsea owner, is doing his bit as well with, um, I think, the, uh, the local Stamford Bridge Hospital yeah. or the hotel. He's, he's turned it into a hospital. That's right, yeah. You know, I'm sure the clubs will look after their own. So, for example, if Chelsea staff were in a bad situation, I'm sure the players would pitch in and help. But does their generosity extend to the lower leagues? Mm. Where Because if you, if you do believe in that pyramid that, that the Premier League is supported by all the leagues below it, then... You well, know, Barnet. Do, I think Barnet last week did they not? Non-playing, non-playing staff were told, well, yeah, that doors are shut for you. And and again, it is amazing this. And uh, there's a story that's uh, over the last 24 hours breaking out of Switzerland. FC Sion, who have spent huge money in the last 10, 15 years or so on trying to win the Swiss Super League, they've actually sacked nine players who, and again, I've got to say here, reportedly refused to sign an agreement for a wage cut during the coronavirus crisis. Two of those players are pretty well known. Alex Song, former what? Arsenal and Barcelona, not short of a bob or two. Now, before anyone messages in, it's each to their own and that. I don't know his situation, but you can assume he went for big money from Arsenal to Barcelona. I think he played in Ruben, uh, played in Russia for Ruben Kazan for a spell. And Johan Giroud as well, Swiss international, formerly of Arsenal. Then I think he had a spell at Hamburg in Germany. They are just two from nine players that were sacked. They were said, guys, we need you to sign a contract here to say we need you to bring your wages down because we can't afford it not having that sacked alongside a number of other players Pachim uh, Kasami uh, who is formerly of Fulham uh, Seydou Dumbia no, another former Newcastle loanee player and even their captain Javier Kouassi now they're not here to say guys you've got the wrong end of the stick but that's what's being reported by a number of publications that nine players sacked because they refused to take a wage cut I mean that's if that's true shocking and Again, sort of through shoots coming out of the ashes, really, because, you know, those kind of people, those kind of individuals, do you want them at your football club? Mm. Because this is a test for the community. Yeah. And I think it's it's absolutely um, imperative that all footballers come together at this time. In, uh, and try to do the best thing they can for the members of staff that keep their club going, that earn 
that basically live from one paycheck to another mm. and that are not earning £300,000 a week. But, but you're right to allude to it, in, Rob, that come down the pyramids and the players are just like the staff. You know, mm. I think League One, it's not all peaches and cream. It's not all three hundred grand a week. You go down to League One, and I'm thinking England here, League Two, footballers are, are handsomely paid, but equally when you get down to that level, they're picking up salaries that are not too different from the people in and around the club, whether it be a CEO, whether it be a general manager, the manager themselves, for them, they live kind of paycheck to paycheck as well. We're talking about the, the Uber millionaires, the, the 300 grand a week mm. brigade who, I mean, they're not short of a bob or two if they've looked after their finances, which I know many but players do these days. Claude, Claude was talking earlier, wasn't it, about this being a sort of leveller, if you like. Yeah. It sort of brings, it, brings them back down off their, their pedestal of ideology to... Oh, look, they're still looking for the shop that's got Lou Roll and, and course, my bread yeah. in and things like that. And, and whilst we're seeing every, you know, already we're starting to hear stories and we're all getting text messages, etc., of friends, colleagues, other people in other industry being asked to take pay cuts uh, yeah. to help see out tough times, etc., people losing their jobs. So it goes without saying, doesn't it, that footballers of all are not immune to it. Are not immune to it. Exactly that, Tom. Exactly that. Just want to pick you up on, on, on uh, text messages that came through earlier. Obviously, uh, Chris has proffered his solution uh, to how 2020 should conclude in terms of the 2019-2020 Premier League. Uh, Ian's not in cahoots with this one. He says, sorry, Chris, how can you crown champions and not relegate others? One rule for all, either you accept a short season or void all. No exception. Fair play, mate. That's from Ian. Yeah, I mean, Ian, listen, I'm not a Liverpool fan. Uh, and, and again, you're, you're, you're right in what you're saying. You can't say, I, I take what you're saying, but all of, these are unprecedented. Again, there's the word again. Well, times whereby yeah, well, 20, right, yeah. 25 points clear. I think it will come to a vote, Ian. And from my understanding of the situation, even Ed Woodward, who's there flying the Man United flag, no one in that room is going to deny Liverpool Premier League champions. Again, this is decisions that are made round a table with the 20 Premier League clubs. Where you will get kickback is on relegation. Liverpool are 25 points clear. With the greatest of respects to Villa, to Bournemouth and Norwich, they're only a few points from getting survival, which for a lot of these clubs is actual, forget survival in the Premier League, it's survival full stop, certainly for Bournemouth. And I don't know, Ian, if you're a Bournemouth fan, if Bournemouth go down, and I know we've got Bournemouth fans that listen to us on a regular basis, I mean, Bournemouth, is it not 90% of their turnover to wage ratio? They're a club that has a 12,000 capacity stadium, and Mm. yet they're going out spending 30 million quid, not just on one player. They've spent huge sums putting that squad together for Eddie Howe. So for matters of life or death, and I mean that for some clubs, whereby there is no way in heck, no way in heck, that those three clubs, if they say null and void it or if they say we're going to take a snapshot of the season now, yes, I think common sense comes in. Liverpool will be given the title. I can bet you now that those three clubs that are currently bottom three will not be playing championship next season. There's no way. And what about if you cross over to Spain, where I think Spain are now, what, three or four on the list of worst affected countries, certainly second behind Italy in Europe. You've got a situation where Barcelona are two points ahead of Real Madrid after 27 games played. What on earth happens there? They need to finish. I think Javier Tebas has came out to say originally, the president of La Liga has said we need to finish this. And I think his new rhetoric is it's not going to be finished. He is very much a doomsayer. He's saying that "Mm, I don't think the season will be ended. So So they have to scrub it. So they'll have to scrub it. And and I think that's what's going to happen. For a lot of leagues, they'll take their own decisions. Premier League will make a decision that suits them. La Liga, likewise. Italy, Serie A, likewise. Bundesliga and Liga A. Remember. So what does that, how does that affect the following Champions League, the following UEFA competition? 
decisions. I would imagine that what they'll do is, and again, it comes to decisions made around a table. Each league might be different. For example, France could turn around and say, we're happy to take a snapshot now. And the clubs that are in the bottom three, they may well be rewarded handsomely. They may get a slice of the TV pie next season as a way of saying, what more do you want? Equally, you might get some leagues and some governing bodies that say, you know what? We hit the reset button and it's the teams that were of last season in the Champions League that are back in again. And the money will have to you know, trickle down. There may well be a, a, an agreement come to whereby it's a bit unfair, so therefore you've got to, your money that you're getting from the Champions League needs to trickle down to other sides. Oh, fellas, here we are. You know, Here we are, banging on about it and things like that. When in doubt, just ask Gary Neville. He's got it all sorted out. Gary has this one down pat. You know, if you want him to solve any of the issues with the European leagues, in fact, if you want him to sort the Premier League, he's got it all sorted. I think at this moment in time, though, I think the most important thing is making sure that they make decisive decisions around um, extending the season, the, the protection of um, staff, players and guests and, 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 and fans, and they've done that. So they've bought themselves some time, I think, the Premier League and the EFL clubs to be or the, the EFL to be able to react over this next few weeks. The last thing that I'm actually worried about at this moment in time is sorting out the fixtures. If football players need to play every day for nine days to finish the Premier League as a, as a worst case scenario, they would do it because they'd just get their heads round it and they would make it a festival of football and it would be something quite spectacular. And football can really bring some hope and joy when the country finally comes out of this crisis and doing a festival of football for two weeks where the league's finished in two weeks, the Champions League's finished in a week, the you know, the FA Cup is finished in four days, could be something quite special. I'm not saying they're the examples that should be followed, but you understand what I'm saying here, that there could be something quite spectacular, football fans coming together after this crisis is over, could really bring some joy back to the nation because it does impact so many people in so many towns and cities across the country. I know we've got to go to a break and Benji's uh, doing his nut at the moment uh, on that one, but I've got to break in with the thoughts of the boys. Because as much as, as I'd love it, uh, I mean, I'd welcome... It's not said to me that they're playing said, nine, nine straight games of Premier League action to finish the season. I would love that, but it's insanity. It's insanity. It's absolutely insanity. I love insanity. Gary Neville's little phrase, you know what I'm saying? Uh, no, no, not as usually. Know, usually <laughs> he makes very... He, ma- he speaks a lot of sense, does he's Gary, flustered Gary, Gary Neville. Neville. Yeah. I mean, that's but, nonsense. Um, he's, not, he's not thinking clearly on this one. You no. can't have nine consecutive... People moan about three games over eight days at Christmas. <laughs> Nine straight days of Premier League action. Oh, and a bit of Champions League as well. Be in bits. Yeah, Can you imagine? Well. Can you imagine the injury list come the end of it? <laughs> Nonsense, oh, my word. I get the premise. A festival of football whereby maybe it's a month and it is a couple of games a week and the, the managers will have to rotate squads. But the notion that man, your any team will play nine games in nine days. I'm sorry, Gary. Not happening. The Grill has all the sport you need right now. On Dubai I 103.8. Chris McCarty alongside me and Robbie Greenfield as well. Chris, Olympics? Oh, Olympic Games. Well, Tokyo and the IOC are, are still saying that the that its show is going ahead, that the greatest sporting show on the planet is still going ahead. It's due to begin, what is it, July 24th or 21st, I think it is, yeah. of this year. And they're saying it's business as usual. Now, I'm not quite sure whether they've got their heads in the sand or not over this one. It's a weird one, Robbie, because you, you listen to the president of Japan, Shinjo Abe, and he's saying, yeah, 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 everything's fine. But of course he would, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, from his point of view, they've got to proceed as if it's business as usual. Okay, because yeah. Yeah. I think some events have had, have, have had uh, their fate taken away from them because of the, the, the timing Timings. of it. Yeah. So, for example, 
you know, random example, the Masters, they had to postpone. They couldn't. The Premier League have had to keep pushing back. Um, the Euro 2020 had to move. But the Olympics, because of where it fits in the schedule, it's, it's towards the back end of July. There is still this thought that, hang on a minute, if China can get a handle on things yeah. now, having really been battling this thing for a couple of months and the rest of the world gets on that path, then, yeah, maybe, maybe the Olympics is feasible. So I don't quite blame the, the IOC for continuing. I because if I think if they start dithering, then, then, it, then it just that they're acknowledging that it's not going to happen. So they have to proceed like it's business as usual. But I can understand why the athletes now, dissent is growing among the athletes because their plans, their training, they, they have spent the, the last four years of their entire lives, their entire careers training for this moment in Japan, for them to be able to deliver their best ever performance and for them to challenge for a medal. And now their preparations have been thrown into disarray. And you can completely understand why they want answers from the IOC. Now, we caught up earlier this week with Simon Clegg, uh, CBE. He is one of the UK's most experienced yeah. sports businessmen and sports leaders in general. He's been the chief executive of the British Olympic Association. He's been a manager of various British teams at 12 Olympic and Olympic Winter Games. He's even been a chief executive of Ipswich Town while yeah. Roy Keane was the manager. So we had some, uh, some fun with him on that regard. That's probably a conversation for another day. But we caught up with him a little earlier this week a couple of days ago and we asked him to to really map out for us how logistically the olympic games can proceed from here well i think it's an incredibly difficult situation for everyone uh, i think it's very fluid and i think it's very fast moving uh, and of course the, the one thing that athletes don't want is is uncertainty they want to be able to control the controllables uh, and particularly in the olympic movement where you know the olympic games only comes around once every four years uh, and you've got athletes who are uh, preparing and looking to uh, peak in July this year. Uh, a lot of them having to go through qualification processes, uh, which have now um, been uh, completely disrupted. Um, and therefore, that uncertainty um, plays very heavily on the minds of individual athletes. Uh, and then when you couple on, on top of that in countries like uh, Spain and in France, where athletes are effectively confined to their houses, you know, unable to, uh, I was speaking to a colleague only yesterday, uh, who'd been stopped by the police, and, and although she had the relevant piece of paper, you know, she was told that she was too far from her home, and she was only one kilometer away from her home. So, you know, these are very challenging times, and for high-performance uh, athletes, who are preparing to compete at the, the peak of their careers uh, in July this year. Um, this is very, very disruptive. Uh, and, of course, uh, the other thing is that we have inconsistency. Uh, we don't have all athletes being treated on an equal basis because, obviously, each one of them is having to um, uh, reflect and respect the, the, the advice and guidance from their individual governments. Um, so it's a very challenging time for everyone, and in particular for the IOC, because the IOC will do everything possible to stage the games uh, at the um, uh, agreed dates, because the ramifications for postponing it uh, are significant. 
Yeah, let's talk maybe about some of those ramifications, Simon, because you can't blame Japan for saying it's business as usual. They have sunk huge, huge sums of money. They've invested billions into hosting this. So I've got some sympathy for them. But when you talk ramifications, I mean, maybe give us a bit of an insight for, for casual observers, perhaps not aware of what it takes to put on an event of this magnitude. What are the kind of things that maybe we're not being mindful of? Well, I was um, uh, a little bit surprised by one um, uh, prospective uh, London mayoral candidate the other uh, a couple of weeks ago who suggested that London could host the Games uh, if Tokyo couldn't. Uh, I mean, that was obviously completely ridiculous because they uh, didn't understand the, the practical ramifications of, of actually um, putting on an event like that, not least of which is, of course, the... Uh, oh, the, the accommodation where 16,500 people lived during the London 2012 Olympics uh, has completely been sold off to um, uh, private uh, individuals who, who, who are now living in that area. And you can't simply turf people out of their, um, and, uh, out of their, their, their homes and apartments, and, and that's one practical ramification. If one looks at that particular scenario and rolls forward to Tokyo 2020, They've built some 5,632 um, apartments to accommodate the 16,500 athletes and officials um, that are necessary to live in the Olympic Village. And those apartments have been sold and have been incredibly popular, I might say, um, to private citizens who will be taking up occupation uh, immediately after the Olympic Games. Wow. So postponing the Olympic Games even for a, um, you know, a number of months or, or, or for, for into, the, into 2021, has got uh, huge ramifications for something as, as one-dimensional as where all of the athletes and officials would live. Simon, we don't know how this is going to progress. We, we, we're obviously looking at graphs, we're looking at uh, charts, we're listening to experts who have their own opinion on how this, this whole outbreak will eventually be contained and eventually and eventually be quelled to the point where normal service can resume. So there's a lot of uncertainty and that there's a lot of just wait and see about this situation. But from, from your sort of insight into, into kind of how these kind of things evolve and how they happen, what is the most likely thing to happen to the Olympics? It, is it a postponement? Is it a complete cancellation? Is it likely to go ahead in some capacity? Is it conscionable to think that it could be held somewhat behind closed doors, or is that simply against the fundamental Olympic spirit? Well, there's a, there's a number of questions there. Um, I'm, I, I believe that cancellation um, has to be, uh, out, at this moment in time, uh, has to be uh, out, out of the options. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we probably will be looking at a postponement, but as I said, the IOC will try and hold off on the decision of that uh, until the last possible moment. I, I see that some people have speculated that that could be as late as May um, because the the ramifications for everyone, I mean, ju just think about sports broadcasters who have built their entire uh, broadcasting schedule um, over the summer months around uh, showcasing the Olympic Games. You know, the, the broadcasters who pay significant sums of money for the broadcasting rights to the Olympic Games are now going to have to fill those schedules and uh, there's obviously question marks in terms of the, the finances that would come to the IOC and most of the money that comes to the International Olympic Committees gets distributed down into the international federations 
uh, and obviously if there are issues to do with finances, finances from broadcasting, then one needs to think about the, the ramifications of uh, those uh, finances not being available at the same level to the international federations who run sport on a day-in, day-out basis. So it's a very, very challenging situation uh, for everyone. I think um, hosting the Olympic Games um, behind closed doors, I, I don't think that that is a <clears throat> uh, an option that many people would like to consider. Uh, you know, you're going to be uh, broadcasting the Olympic Games with completely no atmosphere, uh, with no background noise, uh, and and you'll still be asking athletes to leave the safety and security of their own homes and their own nations uh, to travel overseas. And the one thing that we do know about this, this terrible virus is, is that it is, it is passed um, through human, human contact. So the advice at the moment is that everyone should be locking down and um, we just don't know how much longer we're going to have to stay in that situation. Last one from us, Simon, and I mean this sincerely. The invitation is very much open. We'd love to have you in studio to talk all things Ipswich Town and just what an incredible experience it was to manage Roy Keane. I'd love to pick your brains (laughs) on all of that one day soon, Simon. But just on the fact you've dealt with athletes, and, and I think it's important that we spend a bit of time talking about them because you've managed them. You know what it's like to be in that in their shoes. I mean, give us a little bit of an insight. What advice would you be giving those athletes who right now do not know whether they're coming or going? What could you say to them and what would you say to them? Well, I think uh, the only advice that one could give them is that um, the, the direction being given by the International Olympic Committee at the moment is, is the one that they should follow and that is that the IOC is going to do everything it possibly can to deliver uh, the Olympic Games on time due to the opening uh, on the 24th of July uh, this year. Um, but it will be up to every athlete to determine you know, what they can do within the constraints of the restrictions uh, that are being applied within their, their individual countries. I mean, a number of athletes cannot gain, get to their training facilities. A number of athletes have to have human-to-human contact to prepare for the Olympic Games. And... Uh, you know, at, at a time when we're being told that isolation is the best way of dealing with this um, uh, this disease, uh, it makes it very difficult for, for athletes um, in sports where they are required to um, train against another individual uh, to come together in, in those sort of environments. This is The Grill. Get involved with Dubai Eye on Facebook. Really appreciate all of the text messages that come in. Thank you very much indeed to all of you for those. Almost hit our targets. Uh, Ronaldo has always been up front with assistance and support, says one of our listeners. Quite right indeed. Uh, we talked rugby a little earlier on with none other than Apollo Perolini. Let's get the thoughts now of Will Greenwood, a friend of the show, friend of the UAE, no stranger to Dubai. Spent a bit of time down here at the Emirates Airline Dubai Rugby. Oh, I'm can we even start talking about that? No, let's leave the sevens to be. It's all right. We've got a long time before then. In the meantime, though, uh, what about the Gallagher Premiership? How will they sort out that Premiership? We've been talking about solutions to sort out the Premier League in football. What about the Premiership in rugby? Well, rugby is like all other sports. We are watching, we are waiting, we are reacting, and we like to think we're a pretty stoic bunch. And when the message comes, we will do what's, what's most appropriate. Well, a question about what's most appropriate in the Premier League football is what happens if actually the season 
can't be finished at the moment it's suspended if the premiership is suspended how would you want it to be resolved because there's talk of null and void in football there's talk about it's leaving the the league as it is and ending it like that what do you think in rugby so i don't think one size fits all um so in rugby for example in the premiership i don't want to use the word fortunate because it seems a daft thing to a word to use but saracens have been relegated so the relegation issue is clear. Newcastle in the championship below, we run a one-up, one-down system. Newcastle are miles clear in the league below. So if the Premiership were to be abandoned for this season, the promotion relegation seems a pretty obvious one to me. And I don't think you get too many people saying, well, 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 hold on, why are Newcastle coming up? They would be fine to come up. At the top end of the table... Um, we run light rugby league, we run an end of season winner, but you, that's just a sort of an, a nominal uh, victory. The reality is you go to a playoff system and you have a grand final uh, at Twickenham where the top four teams uh, compete in semi-finals with one and two getting home semi-final. Now, were the season to be resumed back end of May, uh, my view is the top four are they are. That's it, that's it. You shut the door, you close the door. You've got to have some sort of finality. Uh, Will saying there that um, Saracens are down, they're relegated. Yep, we'd we'd heard that mid-season. However, you'd think that that one might still be a well, live situation. Well, it's interesting. The Daily Mail over in the UK, Mail Online, one of the big uh, platforms, have run an article. As it's titled an exclusive, saying that they may well avoid it. And it's, well... It's a bit speculative, to say the least. It's a bit sensationalist, because what they're saying is they might avoid it because well, one or two teams might just go to the wall, is what they're claiming, which would lead to Saracens, in effect, staying in the Premiership. Now, that is going from not to 100 in well in pretty quick fashion, but that's an exclusive that they're writing. Of course, we do not know. There will be a lot of conversations that will be had, but I think we all know. I think the sane individual, and the three of us I like to think are, they've got to pay whenever that may be, whenever we see rugby again, they've got to pay for their misdemeanours because Mm. they flouted the rules in a massive... Okay, it's a grey area, and the powers that be, if they were in this room right now, would probably map it out as to what they did. What they did, though, they broke the rules, and the likes of Danny Kerr, etc., who have said, well... Well, wait a minute, if we all did that, then we might have been, you know, like the Owen Farrells and the Maro Atojas of this world, we would have medals around our neck. They're going to have to pay for this, but yeah, the Mail Online are putting it out there, speculating somewhat that they might just avoid it down the line. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I don't think they can be... <gasps> whoa, 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 can we record yeah, that? Can we clip I, that one up, Benji? They, <laughs> why, should, why, should, why, should, why should this current crisis... Let them off the hook. Well, it just leads if, because if teams do go to the wall. And that may happen. I mean, I, I'm now, again, don't want to scaremonger, but let, there, there will be, again, got to work, watch my words here, there will be sporting victims of all of this. Whether it be rugby league, whether it be football, there will be teams that will not exist after this. There really will, because the margins are well, I'm, so I'm starting fine. to think that by speaking to Damien Reid and alluding to by via Tom Urquhart that uh, we might all be playing games online when sport finally <laughs> does resume <laughs> there'll be no live sport whatsoever esports will it's officially take over the world and that that is a depressing thought it's wow. the fact that esports is the, the fact that esports is set to profit from this more than any other true yeah uh, every single sport will lose apart from i believe esports mm. because what have they got that no one else has got They've got that ability to hold their events remotely. Mm. No. It doesn't matter. They don't need 10,000 people in an auditorium to hold their events. Okay, fine, they can still sell those out, but 
The thing I'm, I'm, I mean, UFC. We haven't spoken about uh, MMA, but but UFC continuing to to stick to Dana White sticking to his guns to say that this massive fight between Habib Nurmagomedov, undefeat, undefeated in the UFC, and Tony Ferguson, the man that many believe is capable, the only man in that weight class capable of beating Khabib. We've been getting excited about this fight a long time out. Dana White says it's still taking place mm. in April. There's a there's a there's a chance now that it will be held elsewhere. Just imagine oh, the, yeah. the gate on that fight Khabib and, if it does happen. And Khabib and Ferguson. They have to do it behind closed doors. Yeah. Well, they have to. And Khabib, then it just becomes the pay-per-view fight. Yeah. And Khabib, so you talk about esports. The other, the other, the other, the other potential winner out yeah. of this would be pay-per-view. The, pay, yes. the paywall. Which, the paywall, yeah. yeah. Which they're already talking. I believe there's a story that I, 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 I caught the headline for of the Six Nations going behind a paywall. Cheapers. But then so how, do you, how do you have, how do you have a UFC fight in, with, with, without a crowd? Oh, it'd be so weird. It would be so bizarre. But then I think all sports are. You're watching PSG against Borussia Dortmund the other night, a Champions League game that was played as if it was a testimonial. Mm. It just sucks the life out of sport. I mean, sport without fans, I think you said it on the grill a couple of weeks back, Tom, it's not sport mm. when you take the fans away. And, and just uh, b- back be to the... It'd be a weird walkout, wouldn't it? It would be, right? <laughs> just imagine. Just, it would take away the, the grandiose, the pomp and ceremony from the walkout. Tyson Fury being carried out on a throne. <laughs> Looks more ridiculous. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> he couldn't do it. He'd have to walk out normally. It would be so strange. Uh, just very quickly, Tom, in actual fact, Premiership clubs, we'll go back to the Saracen story about they might avoid relegation. They lose around 50 million quid a season mm. collectively. They have Eva Premiership. I mean, that's mm. extraordinary. Sports in a strange place. Um, and we are going to wrap up with a little story. Big thank you to uh, all of you for your thoughts and comments. Big thanks to Robbie Greenfield for being on board. Uh, RG, thanks so much indeed for oh, everything. Absolute pleasure. Chris yeah. McCarty, final question goes to you. Who is Danny Phillips? Yeah, Danny Phillips, player manager of, and this is a little tongue-in-cheek, a nice little story to finish on because we taught Liverpool Football Club and that they well, may well be denied their little moment in the sun after 30-year wait for a league title. Got a spare of thought right here in Dubai for the GPE All-Stars Vets. They play in the Dubai Amateur League, uh, Tom. 14 games, 14 wins. They're one point away from the title and it may all be taken away from them. We caught up with Danny this week to tell us more. Thanks for tuning in. We're back next week from 6 till then. Bye-bye. Well, and also, they've, they've always got next season or the season after. For most of our guys, you know, we're running out of time. So, uh, <laughs> a lot of you retiring after this. Most of our team are going to be in a three-month lockdown. We're so old. So, uh, you know, it's, it could be the last chance of success. So, yeah, so very, all very close, but still very far. And 14 out of 14, is that... Are you on the brink of history? I mean, Liverpool are having a decent season, fair play to them. But 14 out of 14 is precocious, Danny. Well, I think history is the right word. But we, we actually have 17, 17 wins on the spin, 37 unbeaten. Oh, wow. But, um, but it's 14 this season. So uh, you're right, we're looking for a... We drew a few last year, so we're looking for the, we're looking for the perfect, perfect season this season. But be tough because there's lots of... It's, a very, it's not old guys doddering around the pitch. It's quite competitive and, uh, and can get a bit feisty and, and all the boys are competitive. So it's... Uh, it's a good fun, good fun league, and there's nothing we can't take anything for granted. Thirteen from fourteen, you are literally Forget standing. Liverpool. They're more like the Arsenal Invincibles. I was going to say, I was going to say exactly that. I mean, so, in that regard, then who's your Thierry Henry, Danny? <laughs> do, do you know what? If you played against, if the teams that play against us, any of them are listening to that, they'd be laughing because we're more like Chelsea in the first year and Mourinho. <laughs> Organised, <laughs> physical. <laughs> yeah, there's a few there's a few teams in there that can probably play play a little bit, maybe tiny a little bit better than us. But we we are we're organised and 
and we're competitive and uh, we stick to our guns. And it is, it, although he's 37 unbeaten, it's fantastic. It's there's lots of close games in there. We all sort of scratch our heads and wonder how we've well, we've managed to do that because, like I say, some good good sides in there: Dubai Irish, Dubai FC, Bears, people like that. So. It's, it's been a great run. We want to keep it going and we'd love to finish with a perfect record. But will the fate, you know, take away our historical moment? We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, in all seriousness in that, because, of course, recreational events closed down for children, closed down now for adults for the time being. What is the official word from the league organisers, the Dubai Amateur League? Is it just, guys, until we know more, unfortunately, the league is no more? I think, uh, yeah, you, first of all, we, you know, we want to keep everybody safe. And the, and the league, we play in two leagues, we play in the DAFL, we play in the EFA. And I say both of them have been really great on the communication. There's been some changes in, in, in decisions in the last couple of weeks of what was possible and what was not going to be possible. And they've kept us, you know, informed of what's happening. Nobody, everybody wants to play football. And you take people's football away, it's, it's, you know, it hurts. And, and you, you sat at home in the evening wondering what you're going to do. But the sensible decision seems to have been took and fair play to the, to the leagues we play in. They've communicated really well and, and kept, us, kept us going. We don't know when we're going to be back. We were playing in June last year. We'd already been on our end of season due to Ayanafa. <laughs> we came back and, and, we, and we, played a couple, we played two games after that. So, you know, we're willing to do that again. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. But we just hope that when we come back, everybody's that we, I know our competi- competitors and our teammates are back healthy and and back playing. Now tell us this, Danny: Has anyone ever actually gone a season of the Dubai Amateur League, of the Vets League, unbeaten before? Well, we did it last year. Oh, cheapers. Yeah. Okay, so you did it last um, season. So, so, so yeah, I think Dubai FC did it before us. Um, okay, for a maybe a couple of years before us. We we did it. We did it last year. No one's ever done it back to back. I'm sure no one's done it perfect. I don't know anybody's been 37 unbeaten, but I don't want to say too much because we're, we're already um, we're already on a pedestal and yeah. shut down. So, um, but I'm pretty sure Dubai FC did it before, and it, it's been a couple of teams through the years. The Bears had a couple of years strong. Dubai FC had a couple of years strong. It kind of depends how you age. Dubai Irish have come into it now. They're a little bit younger. I think they're going to have a, a, a good period, and we need to find some young blood. <laughs> um, but our guys, our guys are keeping going as long as they can for the time being. Danny, if you compare yourself to the 2004 Chelsea side, I've got to ask, you'll have to forgive the question, who is your captain, leader, legend, John Terry? <laughs> well, we've got, we've, got, we've got two, I'd say. We've got John, John Terry, we've got John Crawford, who played about uh, 200 million games in Scotland for <laughs> Arbroath and oh, good player. Queen of the South, uh, teams like that. He's, he's, um, he's in his early 50s now and he's still doing well. And then probably our, I don't know, our Marcel Desailly is probably a guy called Dania Bella. He doesn't take it. We call him the widow maker. <laughs> um, he, he, he's, he's very competitive. But, you know, we've got, we've, got, we've got a lot of good players. We've got a few. Um, we've got a few. Uh, we, a Didier Drogba, we've just signed a guy called David Brossa, who's uh, turned into a bit of a, a Drogba for us. But we're, we're, uh, and of course, I'm Jose Mourinho. So that goes <laughs> Of course that. you are. <laughs> You're the special one. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe they're the busy one. Yeah. The busy part, but, uh, but, but we, I, I we've got a lot. Of, we've got a lot of guys that manage the side: Chris Green and, and Gareth Palmer. Uh, so, um, so everybody chips in, and it's good, it's good fun. You know, I encourage anybody to get involved in it when it comes back. You're listening to the Grill on Dubai I 103.8. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiI 1038com